Here I stand. As the flames of the torches died down in the assembly hall in Worms, Germany, on the evening of April 18, 1521, these simple words detonated and burst forth in a shower of light throughout Europe. A humble German monk dressed in plain clothes stands before the Holy Roman Emperor dressed in regal splendor. Emperor Charles V demands that Professor Martin Luther would recant his biblical convictions, but Luther declares his allegiance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luther knew that standing his ground and defying the emperor would subject him to a death sentence, and indeed it does. But Luther served a higher king. And he knew that to suffer a defiled conscience by betraying his Lord was worse than death. Luther made many speeches in the course of his life. In fact, many after this moment. He took many bold stands throughout his life. But as historians look back, it was this statement before the powerful Holy Roman Emperor that seemed to epitomize Luther's life in the defense of the Gospel. Here I stand. I can do no other. When the esteemed scholar Roland Bainton penned his classic biography of Martin Luther, he chose these words as the title. To speak for the life, here I stand. As we've journeyed through the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul has made many important speeches and he has proclaimed the gospel in many unique and difficult situations including before the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem and before the Oropagus in Athens. But Acts is skillfully laid out such that Luke clearly intends this final speech of Paul in Acts to stand as the climactic, quintessential defense of the Gospel. Remember, we've worked our way through four defenses of the faith by Paul here. Coming to this last one, this final fifth defense, we see it laid out in the text as the grand finale declaration of the Christian faith. We're to see it that way. All the instruments are playing here. All the themes come together. This is the place where we really touch the heart of the book of Acts. And it's all laid out for us to see it that way. What happens from this place is really denouement. It is a falling off, a finishing up of what has been already proclaimed here and comes to climax in this text. Remember that Paul has been in prison now for some two years in Caesarea under the rule of Governor Felix. Felix is recalled to Rome and replaced by Governor Festus. Festus has taken up Paul's case, but he's really found nothing criminal in Paul's record. Yet he leaves Paul in prison because to release Paul would upset the Jews, the very people that Festus must learn to get along with in order to survive very long as governor in Judea. So realizing that Festus is being swayed by the Jews, that he's really looking at this case from a political standpoint, Paul knows he's in big trouble if he goes to Jerusalem and Festus tries his case there, and so he appeals to Caesar Festus grants that appeal as he would need to, and Paul is on his way now to Rome, protected by the empire itself. But remember, Festus has just become the new governor of Judea. Living there in that magnificent palace on the sea at Caesarea, he is 
paid a visit by the esteemed King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. In the first segment here that we look at, verse 13 of chapter 25, we will find Festus presenting Paul's case to Agrippa and to Bernice. So he's going to be talking to them about Paul. We see some of the setting here. Verse 13, that when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Marcus Julius Agrippa II and his younger sister Bernice sweep into Caesarea to welcome this new governor of Judea. Agrippa and Bernice enjoy really what we might call rock star status here in uh, the Roman world. And Festus had to be greatly honored by their visit. Their imperial pedigree, let's consider it for a moment. I think it's important to know who these two are because it brings to light so much of what is said in Paul's speech. Their great-grandfather was Herod the Great. He built the city. He built Caesarea, this great harbor, and this magnificent palace where they are visiting Festus. This is their great-grandfather. They represent the famed Herodian line. In fact, it dies with Agrippa too. This great Herodian line of kings, and Agrippa was reigning as king at the time in the neighboring region to the northeast of Judea, so it is probably he who is the first to come and to welcome the new governor over Judea, Festus. In his own life, Agrippa was schooled at Rome in the court of Emperor Claudius and was a favorite of Rome at this time. He was a quasi-Jew. There were some Jewish connections in the past. And so Rome thought he was really the uh, great advisor on all things Jewish in Judea. Agrippa was entrusted not only with advising Rome about the Jews and about the Hebrew Scriptures, but he was also then entrusted with the treasuries at Jerusalem and was the one who would choose the high priest at Jerusalem, the leader of the Sanhedrin. He was a very important man, and believe me, Festus didn't miss the point that he needs to get to know this guy pretty well. They need to be good friends. Their mother, Agrippa II and Bernice, their mother was deeply interested in the Christian faith. She had knowledge of the Jewish faith and had an interest in the Christian faith, but their father was King Herod in Acts 12 who executed the Apostle James and imprisoned Peter. They have quite a background here. But all of this combined, it was quite important that Festus would gain Agrippa's friendship. And here they are at the palace to spend some time. There's no revolt in the region. All they have to do is just pass time together. But I want to tell you that this couple was a piece of work. This brother and sister were a mess in a lot of ways. They had all the pedigree, all the fame, all the popularity, all the power, but they were a mess. Their younger sister was Drusilla. Remember her from last week? Drusilla, the adulterous teenage beauty queen whose lust for power led her to divorce her husband and to marry Felix. Yet Agrippa and Bernice were not to be outdone by their younger sister in the category of depravity. When Bernice's husband and uncle Herod of Chalcis died, she moved in with her brother Agrippa to live with him. The nature of their relationship was highly suspicious, and rumors began to spread quickly. Bernice quickly married someone in order to put the rumors to rest, but very soon left that man and came back to Agrippa, her depraved passions trumping the social pressures of the rumor mill. She didn't care. 
She later became the lover of Titus, the eventual emperor, and was a godless woman as Agrippa was a godless man. That means that coming into the palace where Paul is likely in prison is a couple coming to stay for a season with Festus at Caesarea. They are wealthy, they are famous, they have prestige, they're well-connected, and they are living in the bondage of moral darkness. They come to visit Festus, verse 14. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make their defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal, and I ordered the man to be brought. And when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. That is, Festus admits that he does not know what to do with Paul. I was sure the guy would really be a bad dude. He's not from anything that I can see. Everything about this case confuses him as one who does not have the knowledge of the Jewish worldview. It would certainly be nice if Agrippa would step in and help him out here. This is what Festus does get. Verse 19. Rather, he's not a criminal, but they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That he got. The summary accounts of Paul's previous speeches do not specifically mention the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, I stand here for the defense of the resurrection, for the hope of the resurrection. But he doesn't ever mention that, which is probably indication again and, and gives us support that these speeches are all summarized. Festus did get the point. Paul undoubtedly preached it that Jesus Christ was crucified and risen. And what is significant is that this heathen governor who has no clue of the religious implications of the gospel, who does not understand the situation between Paul and the Israelite establishment, does get this. There was a Jesus living in Israel who died and rose again. He gets that much. And it reminds us that we are really not conveying the gospel as we should to a lost world around us until we get to that point. That is the issue. Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. The historical reality and the theological implications are utterly essential to the gospel. I think there is certainly a danger for all of us to witness the truth of Christ by talking about morality. We may do that positively. Here is how I live. Here is what I believe. This is how Christ has changed my life, and that's good. We may do that negatively. Here is where you fail the will of God. Here is where you violate what He has called us to do. You are living in disobedience to God. That is good. We need to do that. But if that is all that we do, we're really just preaching morality. Be better people than you are. Start to obey God. 
live like I do. We aren't there until we get to the heart of the gospel, which is the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. We must get there. And Paul did, and Festus got it. Rejecting it, he knew what the point was. There's a Jesus who rose from the dead. By all rights, Festus should have released Paul, but political pressures from the Jews was too great, and so proposing to influence some breakthrough, Festus goes on to explain, verse 20, that being at loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them, but when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar." These two rulers have a lot of time on their hands. Agrippa has nothing better to do, and when Festus' report piques his interest, he requests a little entertainment, much as Felix and Drusilla had done with Paul earlier. And he says, verse 22, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, Festus replies, you will hear him. No delay at all. I was hoping you'd say that hoping that he'll cast some light upon the situation. As his great-uncle Herod Antipas had wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle in Luke 23, so Agrippa wants to hear Jesus' witness speak. Festus is more than willing to comply. Now, as we move to verse 23, it would probably be better to have a chapter division here, but the next segment has Paul appearing before Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice bringing this whole situation together. Verse 23, So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes, these are very important military leaders, and the prominent men of the city, great civic leaders. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now get this scene. This is a star-studded event. An opportunity to show off Rome's power and splendor at the palace by the sea, the great Herodian palace. And they're not pulling any punches here, and he stops. On the street, people had to be talking. Man, there's something big going on at the big house. Look at all these people assembling, all these soldiers, all these civil leaders, all of these people coming to the palace. Something big is going on up there. Lots of important people gathering. Indeed, it was a chest-thumping affair. The incestuous couple, glittering with splendor, seat themselves dressed in the purple robes of royalty. While Festus joined them in his scarlet robe, a Roman governor's attire for state functions, and joined by these great military leaders and civic leaders. Many joining them. The great hall is filled with importance. These are really mock trials. They're a way that these governors could have some entertainment and just enjoy themselves and talk through matters. They weren't intended to really solve anything, but they were meant to do this. It was meant as a shock and awe event. It was meant to humble the criminal, to see if the criminal would crack and if they could get under pressure, if they could get through to him. Well, they got through to Paul, just not in a way they figured. But Paul stands there in the midst of all of this regality. See him there in his prison clothes, chains on his hands. He comes into the presence of all of these people. 
before him, think of this, before this man, as he stands for the defense of the gospel, before him is seated a king and a queen. Their great-grandfather built this magnificent harbor and this palace. Their great-grandfather was one who attempted to put Jesus Christ to death as an infant. Their great-granduncle beheaded John the Baptist. Their father executed James and put Peter in prison. Would have done the same with him. This isn't a home game. This is not a happy people to stand before. These are dangerous people for Paul. And there was no question who was in power. Or was there? Verse 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and to send him on to Rome. Paul's innocence is confirmed by each successive ruler, a significant point that Luke wants his readers to grasp. This creates a rather significant problem, though, this whole point for Festus. Verse 26, what's the problem? But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, O wise man, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Seems to me unreasonable not to have set Paul free. No reason to hold on to him. Over and over in this speech, he seeks to make himself look good and constantly incriminates himself. Here's a man without charge who's been held for over two years. I bring him to you to see if we can shake out something wrong. There had been many serious charges, 25-7 says, but Festus realizes none of them are legitimate. Well, here he is. And so now Paul comes in defense before Agrippa and Bernice at verse 1 of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul, in the custom of the day, for a defense, stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. I don't think Paul's making this up. I think he's legitimately excited about standing before this particular man. Why? Because he knows the Old Testament Scriptures. Here is a man who has the concept of the prophetic preparation for Messiah. Paul's first line of defense before Agrippa is that he is not an outsider. He is not a faithless heretic. Agrippa, you must understand this. I come from within. 
And what he's going to argue is that I am simply reflecting what the Scriptures accurately teach and the prophecies of the Old Testament. But the first point, you've got to understand, I'm not some outsider. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Verse 4, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. What? That's got to hit Agrippa. He knows Israel. A Pharisee. This is a man who grew up amidst the strictest of those who interpret the Old Testament Scriptures, the Mosaic Law. He lived every day and every moment of his life conscious of the law of God. Interesting. Not an insurrectionist from Egypt by any means. This is a Pharisee. And, verse 6, now I stand here. Notice the phrase, which we'll repeat. I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I don't think that phrase probably came following hard on verse 7. There's a lot that's not been said, but this is where he gets down to this point. I stand here believing in the hope of the resurrection of the dead, as the Pharisees do. Why would that be thought incredible? The prophets have prophesied it, and I believe it. I'm simply rejoicing in what the Hebrew Scriptures teach. Not only was Paul among the most fervent then of Orthodox Jews as a Pharisee, he too once despised the followers of Jesus. This makes the case even more significant. He's been walking among the most devout Jews, and he has prosecuted the very people that he's now a part of. He understands the antipathy against them very well. Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Jewish synagogues would occasionally whip people who were bent against the purposes of God. He went into these synagogues, stirred things up, tried to detect who the Christians were, and brought them out and had them whipped. When someone was sentenced to death, he would pitch his pebble, literally, Casting a vote that they would die. The black stone was thrown onto the table or onto the floor, and they would, he, he cast the death sentence over and over again. He was out to get the Christians. He believed they all needed to die, just as they now thought he needed to die. Very interesting point, isn't it? Apparently, there's Christians in the synagogues. 
There are Christians who are proclaiming Christ as the prophesied Messiah. There's enough of them that Paul is having to go from synagogue to synagogue to find out who they are to prosecute them. Well, he's talking their language. These rulers know how to prosecute and discipline troublemakers. He gets on the page with them in a sense, but here it's, this is where the radical hinge takes place. At this point, Paul recounts his salvation testimony. Now, even if you're just barely tracking through Acts here, it's got to hit your head that we've heard this before. Hasn't Paul given his testimony already in the book of Acts? Indeed, two times already. This is the third time and the fifth of the fifth defense. Again, one of the reasons we understand that Luke is putting this to be the pinnacle of the book, this declaration of the gospel by Paul. It is the third time. And remember also, as we looked at the second time, how expensive it was to produce a scroll in that day. If you're going to spend the money in repeating text, it is a powerful way of saying this is vital truth. We need to understand that the conversion of Paul is essential to the message of the book of Acts. It's crucial. Luke is purposefully using Paul's testimony to stand as the grand finale presentation of the gospel in Acts. Here he stands, and here he delivers. Verse 12, now by way of personal testimony, in this connection I journey to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, the Aramaic dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What's a goad? Just a long stick with a sharp point used to prod cattle. Same thing you might use a whip on cattle. It's got a sharp point and you poke them and get them going in the way that you want them to go. Now if that goat or lamb or cow kicks against that stick and that sharp point, that animal's not getting anywhere. That's a painful experience. It is the one who's pushing the cattle, who's prodding and moving the cattle. It's that one who's going to have his way. And Jesus says here to Saul, you're on your way to persecute Christians. You need to understand the only thing you're doing is you're kicking against the prod of God. You are resisting divine influence. You're fighting directly against sovereign purposes, Saul. Wow, at that point, Agrippa and Festus should really wake up and take note. That's exactly what they are doing. They are kicking against the sovereign purposes of God by the way that they live and by the way that they're responding to Paul. That's what I was doing, Paul says. Verse 15, I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Just read between the lines here, the Jesus that these Roman governors put to death. He's living. He's risen with authority. He is carrying out His mission. He's alive, the reigning victor. And anyone resisting Him is in rebellion against the ruler of heaven. 
Paul had been persecuting Jesus by persecuting Jesus' followers, but all of that was about to change radically now. For Jesus says to this one who had no interest in Christ but to harm him, verse 16, rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." And if it was a movie, the music would be playing wildly right here. This is the climax. This is the height of it all. Let's pick through it a bit. Stand on your feet. You will be now my servant and my witness. That's precisely what Paul is doing right at this moment. Here I stand, witnessing that Jesus lives. He called me to this mission. Jesus promised, verse 17, that he would deliver Paul from the Gentiles and from the Jews, which means that he will suffer, that they will be after his head, but they will not be able to stop him until Jesus realizes that his mission is complete. You're going to do what I'm calling you to do until your mission is done. No one can harm that. No one can stop that. I don't think it's reading too much into the Bible to say every one of us can make that same claim that knows Christ as Savior and is His witness. We're not going to be stopped until Jesus is done preaching through us. And when He is, He'll call us home. Paul wanted to preach a lot longer than he did, I have no doubt but he fulfilled his mission. The mission will always be fulfilled because the sovereign Lord of the universe is running it. I'll protect you. Verse 18 should give us chills. This is where that defense ends. This is the climax of the book in many respects. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. I say this should give us chills because the words that are being used here by Jesus to Saul of Tarsus are verbiage that was used in the calling of the great prophets of Israel. He is being called in that same line to serve the purposes of God and to proclaim salvation as God's chosen instrument. This is Saul of Tarsus. This is the one who's been killing Christians. But not only that, the verbiage that is used here is also indication of the very work of the Messiah in the Old Testament Scriptures. Paul then is a prophet servant commissioned by God to declare the messianic salvation, including deliverance from sin through sanctification, here I think definitive sanctification, by faith in Jesus. That is stunning. Right out of the gate, the risen Christ is saying to Saul, you're going to do what I'm doing. You are going to bring the light that has been prophesied through the centuries that I am bringing as the risen Messiah. You're going to be bringing that very message. That's your purpose now. Christian, believer in Christ, 
don't allow idolatry to rule your heart right here. Don't allow the dullness of soul to win. Verse 18 is our hope. This light has dawned in my soul because of the mercy of Christ. No more mercy needed for Saul than for me. I may not have been persecuting Christians to death, but I was as anxiously as Saul of Tarsus kicking against the divine purpose. In his mercy alone, the light of the gospel dawns upon us as the followers of Christ. We see it for what it is, and we are saved not as some afterthought of God, but as part of the stream of prophecy leading to the forgiveness of sin and deliverance from the power of Satan, sanctified that has made the holy people of God. Saul is saying, one time I was on the outside, then he brought me in by His grace alone. And that is the testimony that every one of us who knows Christ as Savior can proclaim. The light has dawned. The darkness has passed. The power of Satan has been severed. And now I may live in the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ by faith in Him. What great glory. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, this light has dawned in this world. And we pray that it would dawn in your soul. See Christ for who He is, the risen, conquering King. See Him in His death and resurrection as the sent one from God to rescue you from you, from Satan, from your sin. Paul's not done. This is my story. God saved me dramatically. Therefore, O King Agrippa, verse 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Would you be? What other hope, what, other, what, what else could he do? Just doing what God has told me to do. So I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Nice way to point to salvation and its implications. Repentance, a turning away from our sin and our own self-righteous ways, a turning to God. And where that salvation is real through repentance, there are deeds in keeping with repentance. There's a new way of life that comes to the one who is truly converted. So, says Paul, continuing, for this reason the Jews seized me, in the temple, they tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, verse 17, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ, what is that? What did the prophets prophesy? Verse 23, that Christ must suffer, die, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, the firstborn from among the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That's what I'm proclaiming. Here I stand, Agrippa, proclaiming the message of fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures in Christ. I'm not an innovator. 
I'm proclaiming the fulfillment of the prophetic hope in the resurrection and of moral light dawning on the Gentiles. Repentance, deeds in keeping with that repentance. Think of Bernice and Agrippa, Festus here. The core of that message, as Festus has caught the death and resurrection of Christ in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and the result, light to those in moral darkness, including Gentiles. There it all is. Somewhere along the line of Paul's defense, a sermon broke out. And Festus was not going to endure that any longer. Verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, apparently interrupting him, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. What Paul is saying is, I, what else would I do seeing the risen Christ who calls me to this life as his servant and as his witness? You're out of your mind, says Festus, who is blinded by sin. To say that a man executed by Rome as a capital offender was now ruling the universe as Lord, that's simply nuts. You're crazy. No legitimate Roman judge could put up with such drivel as the resurrection of the body. Paul shoots back, and this really lets us know he was never on his heels in any of this defense. With brilliance, he comes right back to him. Verse 25, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Nutcases, when you tell them they're nutcases, they never answer. I am speaking true and rational words for the king. Now listen, you might have missed this in 15 readings in the book of Acts. Notice what he says, as, as, as I've certainly missed over many readings. For the king knows about these things, and it is to him that I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So get this, Festus speaks to Paul. Paul speaks to Festus about Agrippa, sitting there right next to him. And what is he saying? I'm not insane, Festus. You ask King Agrippa, sitting there right next to you. Jesus rose from the dead. He's had about 25 years to get used to it. He knows what the prophets teach about resurrection. He knows what has happened in Judea. He knows that Jesus' body has never been produced. No plot has ever been uncovered. He knows that people saw this Jesus. It wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't just all of a sudden they came out. Hey, this Jesus was a really good guy. Now that he's gone, we really miss him. Let's make up a story that he was God. This is one who traced back and forth through Judea, through Palestine, performing miracles for over three years. You couldn't exactly miss him. This is one who continued to say during his lifetime, I will die and I will rise again on the third day. And he did. And Agrippa, the guy sitting right next to you, knows it. 
That really riles Agrippa. Verse 26, For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Verse 27, King Agrippa. Now, you see what he does. Now he turns to Agrippa. And he says, Do you believe the prophets? Rhetorical question. He loses patience. He can't even wait for the king to answer and says what? I know that you believe. I know that you believe. Agrippa knew the Hebrew Scriptures sufficiently. He had some measure of faith in their future fulfillment because he had seen it over and over again in the text of Scripture. He knew the heritage of the Jewish people that the prophets of old were to be believed. And I am sure that he had some level of knowledge of the prophecies concerning Messiah. If Agrippa would only act upon that faith, he would find that the Old Testament prophecies pointed to Christ's death and to Christ's resurrection. What Paul is saying here boldly is, Agrippa, you know this. You know enough of these Scriptures and you know enough of the historical realities of the life of Jesus Christ. You know what I'm talking about. You get the sense all of a sudden it's no longer Agrippa and Festus who are running the show here. It's the Apostle Paul. Subtly, the power has shifted to him. He probes deeply into Agrippa's heart, putting Agrippa on the defensive, and he is not going to fold in front of all of these people. And Agrippa comes back with a ridiculous comment and says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? We don't know the attitude with which he says this. Is it sarcastic, angry, cynical, evasive? What is it? I think we can be really sure of this on the basis of the Greek text. He's not saying, Paul, I'm just about there. You've almost persuaded me to become a Christian. That's not what he's saying. This is an embarrassed, quick response to save face in light of all those that are around him. And it means something like, do you really think in this short of a time you're going to convince me to be a Christian? Do you really think with this light weight of an argument that I am going to turn to Christ as my Savior? The meaning is a bit murky in the original text, but it means something along those lines. But notice this. Notice this. Agrippa's response indicates that he knows Paul is using persuasive speech. He intends to convert him. He didn't miss that point. You think you're going to convince me to become a Christian? He knows what Paul's up to. That's exactly what Paul's trying to do. You know the prophecies. You know the history of Christ on some level. You know what I'm saying. Jesus lives, Agrippa. He appeared to me. You know this. Respond. No, Agrippa says, you're not going to persuade me. But he knew he was being persuaded. Secondly, Paul is laboring here, and this is stunning. This is amazing grace. Paul is laboring here for the forgiveness of a bitter enemy. There before him is a wicked man, and remember, this is not an individualistic uh, culture. 
This is a family culture, a corporate culture. Sitting there before him is a wicked man whose grandfather had tried to kill Jesus and whose father had killed the apostle James. That's who's sitting in front of him. And here is Paul preaching the forgiveness of sins. You know what Paul is saying to Agrippa? Agrippa, I want you to be my brother in Christ. I want you to know the forgiveness of sins that I've experienced. Agrippa, you're a murderer. You're a godless man. I was once too. By the mercy of Christ, I've been forgiven. You can receive the same forgiveness. You're over there on that side of the wall. Come over to my side. Be my brother in Christ. It's amazing. He didn't just stand there and just let it go. Now, he could have. Jesus knows there's times you don't cast pearls before swine. And there was a Herod before whom Jesus stood who heard nothing. But Paul is convinced that this man is a candidate to hear this message. He announces it to an enemy of Christ because he was an enemy of Christ. And he says, come join the family. If there's someone that's too wicked to share the gospel with in your knowledge, if you just say, there's no way I'm going there, I don't like them, I don't like how they live, I don't like the situation, or maybe even subtly, there's no way God is ever going to save somebody who's so deserving of judgment. All you are doing is condemning yourself and saying, I really don't understand what a sinner I was in my lostness. We should take the gospel to anyone and say, become my brother or sister in Christ. Agrippa, join me. He lives. He lives, and by his wounds, I've been healed. Embrace the Savior. Well, Agrippa's not going to do that. Now, stop there and say, why? Agrippa's not going to respond to this call to Christ, the Savior, because he's so wicked, because he's a king with all this power and idolatry. Is that the answer? No. Look who's talking to him. The ultimate persecutor of the church. It's not because of that, but the light doesn't dawn. In a mystery we can never understand, the light dawns on Paul and he is fairly picked up by the back of the neck and hauled out of his life into the Christian church. Agrippa doesn't respond. But notice Paul's response to what Agrippa has said. Do you think this is going to get me to become one of you? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Did he, I don't know, but did he raise his arms and kind of point to everybody around him? It's almost humorous, isn't it? Say, I wish you were just like me. Well, except for the chains. Maybe there was some sort of embarrassed laughter and snickering that took place. I don't know. But it's a beautiful word, really. How would a natural man respond in Paul's place? You've been over two years in prison and you have done nothing criminal. A natural man would respond with some combination of bitterness and anger and despair and frustration. 
He would never say with love, I wish you were just like me, except for these chains. He would never say that. Paul is a content man with peace reigning in his soul. The forgiveness of Christ has conquered his heart. It's light inside now. It's warm. It's joy. King Agrippa, these chains are a first-class nuisance. I will grant you, and I couldn't wish them on anyone, but I wish everyone knew the peace that I have in my soul right now. My sins are forgiven, and yours will be if you will trust Jesus as your Savior. They had all the wealth, all the fame, all the power, sitting there in their regal robes in the palace at the sea. But here this humble man stands before them and says, you know nothing of the peace in my heart. I wish you did. You'd give all of this up in a moment. You would repent and turn and embrace Christ if you could for one moment know the joy in my heart. Accept that you're blinded by your sin. The rulers had had enough of Paul's attempts to convert them at about that point, and the show trial ended. Verse 30, then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. I get the feeling they're almost like hyperventilating off in a side room somewhere. Going, man, that didn't really turn out the way we thought it was going to turn out. That was a really uncomfortable scene, but... We're Roman governors, let's speak the truth here. This guy's done nothing criminal. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Which he doesn't realize is to say, this man could have had his head cut off if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. The Jews would have got him if he'd have gone to Jerusalem. He will get to Rome. He will get there with an escort of the highest order of military soldiers. But here he is, with no pompous entrance to announce his importance, with no royal robes to speak of his power, and with no throne on which to sit, the Apostle Paul was by far the most important man in that room. Jesus knew that. Who were these great military tribunes? Who were these great civic leaders of Caesarea that were there invited to this great meeting? For that matter, who's Agrippa and Bernice and Festus but mere historical footnotes of people nobody really cares about other than historians? Think on this. Think on this. We are sitting here far as I know, entirely as Gentiles from many nations on earth and many backgrounds on earth, we're sitting here today because this man spoke. Because he took his stand and proclaimed the gospel, along with many others like him, certainly. But the message of the Apostle Paul witnessed that day fairly circles the globe And as this globe has turned on this Lord's day, people have risen early throughout this planet to proclaim Jesus Christ is risen. We've gathered here this morning 
We've gathered here to say that Jesus Christ lives. The Savior is risen. He is winning a people for His name. He is shining light in the darkness, delivering people from the power of Satan, delivering them to God in reconciliation. He has sanctified us. That is, He has made us His holy ones by the Gospel of Christ. Paul took his stand. He delivered the truth. And Luke's purpose is to say this is the distinctive statement of the Gospel in Acts. May we go rejoicing. Now, I don't want to get pedantic here, but I'd like us to, in worship, look at this line. I could add more to it. I've thought of more last night on my way in. Today, you could add a lot of things here to this list. But let's take a look at it. Just looking at the wonder of this gospel, what are some of the pieces that we see in it? Not to say that any of one of these things is all essential in the proclamation of the gospel, but as we think of the life of the gospel in Christ, we have, first of all, it is not politically subversive. As we proclaim the gospel, we do so as law-abiding citizens deeply interested in what is best for the government under which we live. It is best for every human being on the planet to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We will never do anything but proclaim what is good and best. Secondly, it's not clandestine. I could have maybe used a different word. It's not hidden. It's not done in a corner. It's not private. In the way that we live and in the words that we proclaim, we are out there. We should be out there as people who are seen and who are heard. We're not hiding anything. Bring any unbeliever in among us. They may misunderstand. They may be offended by what we say, but we hide nothing from an unbelieving world. We preach the truth. Thirdly, there are the prophetic roots in the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus didn't just fall out of heaven all of a sudden. He's not a myth that some people came up with. But through thousands of years of prophetic preparation, He is the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of His people. Number four, there's the universal application to Jews and to Gentiles. There's not one person anywhere on this planet that is not the appropriate recipient of the Gospel of Christ in hearing it proclaimed by His people. Jews and Gentiles united in the one body of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Christ is central to the message. It is absolutely crucial to it. Everything hinges on that. Number six, there is the preaching of the repentance of sins. This is a crucial element in the dissemination of the gospel. There is a turning away from the life that you are living. Freedom from self and Satan and sin as you come to embrace Christ and are united with Him in His death and resurrection. Repentance. There is forgiveness of sins. There is a genuine promise from God. Your sins will be washed clean. Rejoice in it. That's the element of the Gospel. It is about the forgiveness of sins. Remembering again, does it produce a life of righteousness? It does. But it's not the life of righteousness that is the salvation itself. It is that Christ washes us clean of our sins to prepare us to live as His people in righteousness. So there is moral transformation in the Gospel. It follows inevitably from it. And there is the reigning Christ, saving souls lost in spiritual darkness. We could add to this. It's a personal testimony of faith. It's not just what Christ has done. It is very appropriate to add, this is what He has done in me. 
It's rational. It is defensible. On and on we could go. But let's rejoice in this gospel truth. And this week, let us pray that God will permit us to join in the work of the risen Savior, in what Jesus is now doing. He uses us as His voice to proclaim a message that liberates that turns unbelievers from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. That's the message he's proclaiming. Will he proclaim it through your voice this week? Will he proclaim it through mine? Will we stand faithfully to preach this message of transformation in Christ. If there's a sense in your soul right now, I don't get it. That joy that's there to say to anybody on this earth, I wish you were exactly like me. I wish that you knew the peace in my heart, the joy in Christ in my heart. If you say, I can't say that. I plead with you to come to Christ today. To come to Him in faith, in humility, in repentance. Come to Christ and embrace His saving grace. Come today. Talk to someone as you leave. Make sure that you come to face Jesus today. There's an emptiness in your soul. It's an emptiness because of the absence of Christ or the overwhelming presence of sin which in either event needs to be left behind now. Turn. May today be a day of repentance and may today be a day in which we rejoice in this gospel truth. Father, we bow in your presence rejoicing in one who stood the test, who proclaimed the message and how we rejoice to know that we are in some sense his children, the product of that message. Give us a sense of the people that could become a product of our own witness. And we thank you for those that are in this assembly and for those outside and who knows how many affected by the witness that flows from this assembly on a weekly basis. But we long, Father, to see greater participation, to join more in what Jesus is doing. We thank you for those that have been transformed before our eyes. We pray, God, that there would be many more added to them. We pray that in everything that we do as a church, that we will continue to be faithful to this core and central message of the Bible, the death and resurrection of Christ. May we preach it faithfully. And again, I pray for anyone separated from Christ today whose soul is empty. I pray that they'd look at Agrippa and know it's not wealth, it's not fame. It's not the great things of this world that everybody looks to, but it is Christ. That's where our joy and our hope comes from. And I ask that each one of us would walk from this place today knowing who Jesus is, being transformed by His indwelling presence. Through His Spirit, may we continue to be sanctified progressively as we have been definitively in Jesus. I pray to this end and plead that You will use this Word to deepen us, to transform us, for the glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.